Hey y'all, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel and Hookset. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. Has anyone ever faced a difficult situation? Anyone here ever faced a difficult situation? If you have, would you just raise your hand? I faced a difficult situation. I think last night was a difficult situation. It's not on the measure of my daughter's psychosis, but um, we made two candy runs yesterday. That's how great. We had $1,000, about $900 worth of candy here, and we went, Josh went to CVS and bought every bag of candy they had, wiped them out, uh, and then, is it, Amanda, who went to the, uh, yeah, Amanda, right? Went to Hannah, did you get lost? No. Oh, the lie. <laughs> Everyone was there. Uh, so she went and bought candy. It was just amazing. We faced a difficult situation. Anyone ever gotten bad news? I know it's a stretch. Has anyone ever gotten some bad news? Raise your hand. I've gotten some bad news. 2020, right? The whole flipping year from March till now, bad news. How about this? Uh, have you ever faced a seemingly insurmountable problem? Has anyone here faced a seemingly insurmountable problem? I know when I was a kid, and my parents would say this phrase. Are you ready for it? Eric, go clean your room. Let me tell you, you want to talk about being overwhelmed? I would walk into my room and see mountains of stuff. And I thought, I'm never going to be able to finish this. Anyone ever felt that way about life? How about you college kids, young adults, when you have like four finals in one day? You guys that are in high school for the first time, right? You're going to go through half of this year, and then you're going to face for the first time in your life, what? Midterm exams. You're going to feel overwhelmed. Um, I was driving Nate to school this week when we happened on a conversation around sin. We were talking about politics. I love it. My son enjoys talking about politics. We're talking about politics. We're talking about culture. We're talking about what kids his age generally think, what morality has morphed into. And our topic eventually got around to what sin is and how some sins or moral feelings or failings feel so bad that those involved in them, listen now, those involved in them either ignore their moral failing or they attempt to normalize their moral failing because the truth would be far too difficult to face. You, are you walking with me here? Do you follow what I'm saying? Some people have done things that go against their conscience, that have shattered them to the point where 
They can't face it. So they'll either run away from it, and this is where a lot of addictions happen. They submerge themselves into numbing activities, or they will try to normalize it. And immediately, two things that jump to your mind perhaps are abortion or homosexuality or things of that nature. In some cases, it's things that you haven't thought of, but your neighbor sitting here has failed in. And to them, they have crossed a line that they could never get back from. You may think their line's no big deal, but to them, their moral failing is so sharp and so hurtful that they run away from it, they don't face it, or they join the Apostle Paul and they try to normalize it. They try to normalize what they're going through. So I want us to think about that in the back of our minds as we go through this message. Maybe, maybe you will have some compassion on people that are struggling. Maybe this will stir your heart not to be so condemning to people, but pray for them. So we all have the same problem. We all have the same problem. Uh, We've been studying the life of Paul, and it was during this chat that this idea continued to coalesce in my mind. It It was forming to a coherent thought that I wanted to share with the church because it was powerful, and I may have said it before, but I want to say it again because I want us to understand that this could be you, and it may not have happened to you yet, but it could happen to you when it it does. I want you to try to remember this, that we all have the same problem. That problem is moral failing. That problem is sin. And so Nate and I were talking on on the way to school, and in this idea of God's amazing grace just broke me. Uh, the, this life of Paul that we've been studying, the life that he was living before he met Jesus face to face, right? Think about it. What was he doing before he met Jesus? Brutally persecuting the church. There were guaranteed deaths that happened not only under his watch, but with his consent, Right? So when he stood and observed Stephen being absolutely brutally murdered, right? The Bible says he gave his consent, he gave permission for that crowd to kill Stephen. As we went through his life, we saw that when he met Jesus later on, Jesus said, boy, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. If you're a King James guy like I, I was, it was, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, the prick in your conscience. So this is Paul's life. This was Paul's life. He was a lot like King David. King David had done something so morally corrupt, so unjust, that his just nature was so broken that he ran away from it. He tried to hide from it. What did King David do? What did King David do? Does anyone know what King David in Israel did? He essentially raped Bathsheba because as the king, if he said, you're coming to my bed, did you have a choice? 
He saw her sunbathing on the rooftop as he stood on his balcony, and he saw her naked body, and he thought, I want that. I'm king. It's mine. Turned out it was Uriah's. One of his, the Bible says, one of his mighty men. We're talking SEAL Team 6 for Israel. And so he tells his general, you put Uriah at the front of the line. Now before he did that, he tried to hide. He said he had Uriah come back from the war effort because he wanted Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba because she'd gotten pregnant. And he's going, well, this is difficult. How am I going to explain this? Oh, I know. I'll trick them all. I'll have Uriah come back. He'll be so sex-starved that he's going to sleep with his wife, and then we can just pretend the child born is Uriah's. Boom, I fixed the problem. Did he fix the problem? No. Why? One reason, Uriah had integrity. He said, I can't sleep with my wife when all of my men are out sleeping in the field under the moon and under the stars. How am I supposed to sleep in comfort and love my wife when my, when my brothers in arms are out there risking their lives? So he wouldn't do it. David found out. So now he tells Joab, his general, he says, listen, put him at the front of the line where the fighting is the hottest. Why did David say that? What did David want to accomplish? He wanted Uriah dead. So he might as well have taken the sword that killed Uriah in his own hand. And then for about a year, he hid himself. He hid himself because he was generally speaking, a just and kind man. Right? That was Uriah. I mean, that was David. Until Nathan the prophet was sent from God to confront David's sin. And then he broke. Paul, I believe, is similar, same way. Paul has killed Stephen. He gave his consent. It might as well have been Right? It might as well have been Paul's hand holding the stone because he gave consent. He started to go house to house and arrest people that were professing Christianity. He began to hate Christianity so much that he got letters from the rulers to go to Damascus to arrest people there. Right? You follow? I believe, I believe this is what Paul was trying to do. He was trying to normalize what he had done in this way. If I can wipe out Christianity... If I can wipe out this religious cult, if I can wipe out this new sect of Judaism, it will prove to my heart that I was right to kill Stephen. It'll prove that this is not a movement of God, that this is a perversion of Judaism, and if I can just, if I can just somehow exterminate them all, exterminate them all then I'm going to be okay. And I really believe that that's what he was mired in. I believe that's why he hated Christianity so much because he was so convicted every time that thought came to his head. He had corrupted himself in such a way that his conscience was broken. And so he thought, if I can just stamp them out, my conscience will be clear. He couldn't, and his conscience didn't clear up. So, Acts chapter 17 Acts chapter 17. Have any, have any of you ever been measured up to your perfect younger sibling? Anyone? Raise your hand if you have a perfect younger sibling that your parents measure you up to. 
You're all chicken is what you are. I see, I see one honest person looking at her mother right now. The only reason she's not raising her hand is this. My younger perfect sibling is not perfect. That's the only reason. If I said, has anybody ever been unfairly measured up to their younger sibling, then she might stand on the chair. Over here. Over here. I was the perfect younger sibling. Um, my, <laughs> no, that's not right. I like to think I was. But when I was growing up, essentially I could do no wrong. I mean, I got some spankings, but they were nowhere near Randy's spankings or Tracy's. Right? I had the perfect older sister. They were bookmarked. Randy and Tracy had no chance. They were middle children. They had no chance. They were measured up against Lita, and they were measured up against me. Now, although I was nowhere near perfect, there is someone that is. And you might say, you shouldn't be measuring me up to somebody that's imperfect, and I agree with you. And this is what religious people tend to do. Religious people measure themselves against themselves which is what Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians. You measure yourself by yourself, and your standard stinks. That's a paraphrase. But you measure yourself against yourself. You say, well, I haven't used the F-bomb like Patrick's used it. So I am better than Patrick. It's probably not true. It's probably not true, especially since my daughter's psychosis my language is still being rehabilitated. Um, but this is what we do. We measure ourselves against ourselves. In some cases, it's unfair. In some cases, it's fair. In all cases, it's wrong because it's the wrong standard of measurement. So we're looking at Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Agropolis and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, <clears throat> since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he need anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he is made from one blood. This is, this is a verse to all those racists out there. Well, there might even be some in here. Y'all are in sin. Just drop that for a second. If anybody has any kind of question about where Emmanuel stands, we are all one blood. Every nation of man to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times, whoops, and boundaries of their dwellings. I'm not going to go there. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we're the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. He's talking, in this case, of idols. So he's walking through town, 
and he sees all of these idols, right? He sees all these objects of worship. Some are coated with gold, some silver, some are made just out of stone. In other places, they're cut from wood. And this is what he's saying. God, listen, man, he is not something that's fashioned from man's imagination or man's hands. And atheism has been trying to say this for years, that God didn't create man, man created God. And Paul has been arguing from the beginning that that is not so. Man has created false gods, but God, the one true God, has created man. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him, the man whom he ordained, from the dead. This is Jesus. So I want you to understand this as we go forward, what the standard is. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we want to, wait a second, this is interesting. We want to hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, and among them, Dionysus of the Air, I can't even talk right now, a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Jesus is the standard. The standard, young lady, is not your younger sister. The standard young lady is not your younger sister. Randy, if you're watching online, I know it's been rough, but it's not even me. It's not your younger brother. In fact, it's not a brother here in the church at all. It's not a Christian brother, an unchristian brother. It is not the culture that you are raised in. And this was the issue that my son and I were talking about. Our culture has decided things that were immoral 50 years ago are not only moral today, but are to be celebrated today. And I believe that reason for that is we try to normalize that which is destroying us. Because we are so afraid to face it. Because to face it means that you're irreparably broken. That's what a lot of people think today. We think that we're so broken that there's no hope for us. So the standard is not our culture. And when we have these discussions with people that don't want to believe in God and they don't believe morality is, a, is something that we should be concerned about from the Bible and we want to take our morality from culture, then you have to be intellectually honest enough to look at other cultures than your own. Our morality comes from God. And we can look at other cultures. I did this sermon series a while ago and I looked at the um, age of consent around the world. I believe in the state of New Hampshire, the age of consent is 16. I believe in Mexico, the age of consent is 12 or, or 14. There are countries overseas where the age of consent is 12 or 13. And you all are going, wow, oh my goodness. But if we, der if, listen, if we derive our morality from our culture, and we say that's sick, that's stupid, how could that be? I just point you to 50 years ago, 
when our culture was different. Culture is not an anchor. Culture shifts constantly. And so our morality, our standard, comes from someplace else. The standard that we will be judged by is Jesus Christ Himself. Now sometimes we think, I'm going to be judged by the Ten Commandments. And certainly, the Ten Commandments are a good standard. But the true standard, the true measure that we will be judged by is Jesus Christ the righteous. So I want you to think about that for a second, because I think that brings it into sharp focus. It's not just a set of rules that we're going to stand before God one day and He's going, oh, let's see, Eric, you lied here. Uh, You looked at a woman there. Um, You cheated on your test here. Uh, He's not going down a list. He's just going to look at me and say, do you look like my son Jesus? Do you look like Jesus? I shaved my beard, so a little less today than two weeks ago. Do you look like Jesus? Sometimes we think of these laws and rules and we become hyper-religious, but we can misinterpret laws. We can twist the Scriptures. We can excuse ourselves by using our difficult circumstances. I was raised this way. This person did this to me. And then there's this passage which shows us what the standard looks like in real life. Jesus was brought up in a pretty tough time. Can I get an amen on that? He, listen, people that were his age and about three years older when he was born were slaughtered because the king was after him. They had to run to a foreign country to survive. Then they come to Nazareth and he's not wealthy He's grown up. It's a difficult time. We only see Joseph in Jesus' life early on. We don't know what happened to Joseph, whether he died while Jesus was growing up or not. But Jesus is growing up, and it was not the same kind of world that we're living in today. People have a really weird concept of what being poor is today. But again, poor, and your definition of it, is cultural. It's cultural. There's people making $2 an hour right now that people in our culture cannot fathom that they would make $2 an hour. I know you're wondering what what I'm doing, but you can't see what's happening up here. And this is driving me absolutely insane. So, Angel, I hope you know the last song by heart. Okay. Where was I? Oh, right? We think we're poor if we don't reach the standard of poverty in our nation. But there's other nations where not only would they, they would look at you as absolutely wealthy if they had what you had. But we use our, we use our economic circumstance to excuse ourselves. But then we look at Jesus. He is our perfect, unwavering standard. I want you to look at Jesus with me this morning. There's people that hate Jesus. You know, Jesus is the one person ever to live who never told a lie. Not even to get out of trouble. Right? Because sometimes it's okay to lie if you're going to get out of trouble. Brad Paisley, that's love. It's a song. Listen to it. It's hilarious. When When your wife cooks you a steak and it tastes like a good year tired... You just say, it's yummy. That's love. No, that's a lie. 
the lie. Jesus never told the lie. When Mary said, Jesus, does this robe make you look fat? He didn't say no. He might have said, it's not the robe. I don't know what he said, but he never lied. He was never unkind. Now, he was straightforward and he was, he was brutally to the point in certain circumstances. But Jesus was the absolute personification of kindness and mercy and love. In fact, when he was hurt, he didn't hurt those who hurt him. He helped those who were users and abusers. Sometimes we help people that come to our church. They can't afford groceries or they can't afford their electric bill. And they come and they tell us their story. And we will pay their electric bill. We don't give them money. We find out who the utility is and then we pay them directly. And then there are others that say, how could you do that? You're being used. Jesus was used all the time. He was used all the time. He fed people that didn't believe in Him. He fed people that later on would say, crucify Him. This is King Jesus. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He was reviled and reviled not again. That's King James' language in 1 Peter where they lied about Him and they cussed Him out and they said despicable things about Him that were not true. And would to God our politicians would learn to follow the example of Jesus. Instead of hitting people back in the teeth, and listen, that is my style. Somebody says something about me, I want to I tear them up. You hit me, you better believe you're going to be hit back. That's not Jesus though. Jesus loved people to the point that He was willing to suffer for them he was reviled, he reviled not again. In other words, he turned the cheek. He is simply put amazing. And according to this passage, he is the standard by which we will all be judged, period. That's tough. That's tough. So my notes say, how have you been doing compared to Jesus? Literally what my notes say. <laughs> well, not so great. How about you guys? Not so well. We all have the same problem. Is that still up there? No, he moved ahead. We all have the same problem. We don't measure up. Not at all. Not even a little bit. On my best day, on a day when I haven't sinned, because I've had days where I've actually gone through 24 hours without sinning, to me, that's a record. That's like a big deal. If I go a full day without thinking a bad thought, saying a bad word, or hitting somebody. I'm kidding about the hitting part. That's a good day. But even on my best day, I don't measure up to Jesus. I don't measure up to Jesus. But what about the one who doesn't even measure up to the lowest standards of our culture around them? What about those people? But what we've done in our culture is we've shifted our culture to be accepted, to, to, to accept them. Not them, but their sin. We drop our culture, we drop our conscience to accept what we've done that has broken us instead of facing it and dealing with it. The one that disappoints himself or his family, the one that hates himself on the outside while promoting the very things he hates about himself 
Is there hope? Now that's the slide. Is there hope for him? Is there hope for me? Can, can you all say that with me? Because I, I think, I know, listen, I have a whole other sermon that's mostly written that I stopped writing about three quarters of the way through this week. And God said, no, this is the right message to preach. Can you say this with me? One, two, three, is there hope for me? One, two, three. Is there hope for me? Has anyone ever felt that way? Anyone ever felt that way? Come on now. How about if you're a Christian, have you still felt that way even after you came to Christ? Anybody ever felt that way? I think this message is directed by God for Emmanuel. You need to hear this. You guys that are online, you need to hear this. Sometimes we fail in ways that nobody else knows. And inside we're dying. And instead of dealing with it, we hide from it or we normalize it. And both cases are wrong. Is there hope for me? Listen, from the very beginning of Paul's story that we started four weeks ago, we found out that there is in fact hope for us. We learned that Paul's story is one of the most amazing stories of redemption in the entire Bible. In fact, in the entire history of the world, Paul's story is one of the greatest stories of redemption. Paul was on his way to being an early manifestation of Adolf Hitler toward Christians. If he could have wiped them out, he would have wiped them out. And God changed his story so that when we think of Paul, most of the time we think he wrote most of the New Testament. He was a great apostle. He was actually brought up into heaven and saw things that he never wrote down. Think about that for a second. Paul knew things about God and about heaven that he didn't share with us. God just gave them to him, probably to keep him going because he was facing a lot of difficult things. So maybe you're like Paul, and you've crossed so many lines in your life that you think you cannot get back across the line. I want to tell you today, there is hope for you. But first of all, you have to face it. Are you excusing your sin because you're afraid it is sin? Are you excusing your sin because you're afraid it's sin? Maybe you think it's too late for you. You grew up in a Christian home. You're doubting. You've got involved in things that your conscience is screaming against. Are you excusing your sin because you're afraid it's sin? Maybe like the crowd Paul was preaching to, you have no idea what this is about, but your conscience has been telling you something is wrong. The conscience is the gift of God to His creation. Remember what Paul said? You're the creation of God and you've been groping about in the dark trying to find Him. And this groping resulted in the creation of these false gods. But you're groping because you were created to find God. So maybe you're like that crowd. The issue many face today is that they've been deceived into thinking that the culture defines morality but it's time to measure up. It's time to realize that whether or not you're as bad as you can be or whether you think you're pretty good, you still need 
Jesus. Because if the culture's sense of morality is in the basement, Jesus never changes. Never changes. So, <clears throat> we need Jesus. Church, listen now. This is, this is huge. I want you to write this down. I want you to burn this on your conscience. I want you to understand this to the depths of your heart because coming out of a legalistic culture, Jesus was much more my standard than he was my Savior. Now listen, make no mistake, Jesus is our standard. He is the one that I want to emulate. Not so that I can be accepted, but because I have been accepted. But he's got to be your Savior. And too many of us miss that. Too many, us, too, too many of us miss that. We need Jesus as our Savior, not, and notice I put the word just, not just our standard. We need Jesus as our Savior, not just our standard. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, the man that he ordained and raised from the dead. One of the greatest joys of my life is when I was in a nursing home ministry. It's a ministry where we go and we, we hold church services for nursing homes. And uh, I, was, I was a little younger than I am now, a young man, and I was going to these nursing homes, and I went over to a nursing home on the west side of town, Han no, Hackett Hill Nursing Home back then. It's now, I think, IHS, unless it's changed again. And I went in there, and I, and I, and I preached a message and I would, at the end of the, just like here, at the end of the service, I would ask people if they would like to trust Jesus as their once and for all personal Savior. Not their good works, not their religion, right? Not their own morality, but Jesus Christ, the Savior, before He's the standard. The standard that He condemns you with is different than the standard that you live to. But they want Jesus as Savior. And so um, there was a little old lady, and her name was Betty Wolf. Anybody remember Betty who's here? She had one leg. She had one leg. She was in a nursing home. She suffered from terrible anxiety. It felt like pins and needles all across her body at times where she couldn't sleep and couldn't move. And she was a tremendous, tremendous sweet little lady. And I went to talk to her after the service and we started talking and she said, um, she said I can't come to Jesus because I'm a Jew. She lived her whole life afraid to trust in Jesus. Because as a Jewish little girl, she was taught that Jesus was evil. She was taught that turning to Jesus was turning away from her Jewishness. Because, again, Israel was a theocracy in its early days, and their identity is wrapped up in their religion. So if you trust Jesus, you're not, you cease to be a Jew. And she didn't think that she could trust Jesus. And so, I explained to her, and I'm not, listen, I wish I could say I'm a great apologist, I wish I could say that I'm um, an expert at leading Jewish people to their Messiah, I was just a young man that knew Isaiah chapter 53 talked about Jesus. And so I turned to her scriptures, the Old Testament, and I read a passage that most Jewish people, my understanding now, Never read and are not taught. And I read this passage and I said, who does this sound like? And the lights came on. This is talking about Jesus. 
And I said, Jesus is a Jew, you know. He never stopped being a Jew because he was the Messiah. And for you to trust in Jesus doesn't change your Jewishness. You don't have to get rid of your traditions. It changes your direction. In fact, he's the sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And the system that you're following right now is not biblical because the temple was destroyed and animal sacrifices ceased. But God never gave that precept for the nation. They just stopped it because it was no longer possible or convenient. Jesus was the last blood sacrifice Israel needed. And friend, He is the last sacrifice you will need. He is what enables you to live up to that standard on earth. But not only that, when I get to heaven one day and Jesus or God looks at me and I'm going to be judged by the standard of Jesus, do you know what He's going to see? Because I have placed my faith in Jesus, He's going to see Jesus. He's going to see Jesus all over me. The Bible says that Jesus has taken His robe of righteousness, His royal standard, if you will, and He has wrapped it around those who have trusted in Him to be their Savior. And so one day, if you've trusted in Jesus, when God looks at you, He sees perfection. So, do you know Jesus? Is there hope for you? There is absolutely 100% hope for you and everyone else in this world today. I don't care if you've gotten involved in something that the culture you're living in has condemned. There are still things our culture condemns. I don't care if you've gotten involved in something that the culture doesn't condemn, but your heart condemns you. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. And I know some of us, we have things that, that we have decided matter. And that that person can never change. And that person can never be saved. And that Listen, you are wrong. There is nothing that cannot be cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Not one thing. Nothing. Sometimes that drives us crazy because we have established a standard that we place on everyone else. And they don't measure up to us. And we think in our imperfect state that they should die, go to hell, and have no chance. But these two, as fallen as they are, are a creation of God. And there is hope for them. And if there is hope for the worst among us, Paul the Apostle, who labeled himself as the chief of sinners, he was on his way to slaughtering the entire Christian church. And God could redeem him. He can redeem you. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 says this. Therefore, when he came into the world, Jesus, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O Lord. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. But then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And then we drop down to verse number 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness, the holiest by the blood of Jesus, we enter into the holiest, listen, we enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We enter into the holiest by the standard that is Jesus wrapped around us. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. Uh, we, can, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find help in time of need. The reason we can go boldly into the throne room of God is because of the shed blood of Jesus. Not because you've cleaned up your act, but because Jesus is cleaning up your act. Too many of us, we stay back, we stay down, we stay in the pit, and we wallow there, and we wallow in defeat, and we wallow in self-pity, and we think there is no hope for us, but there's absolute hope for you, and you are the hope of the world now. We need to get our acts together. We need to get out of this and start living in the person of Christ and showing the world that, that listen, there is hope that you are the light of the world, that he is the light of you. He said, you have, you have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We need Jesus as our Savior, not just our standard. Do you know Jesus as your Savior today? Are there things in your heart that you've not yet been forgiven for? Are there things that you're carrying around, weights and burden? Is there shame that is dragging you down? Do you not, are you not able to look at people in the eye because of things in your past, maybe even things in your present. When you go to bed at night, does your heart condemn you? Does your conscience condemn you? You need to be sprinkled with the pure blood of Jesus Christ. You need to be saved. You need to be forgiven. You need a new life. Have you trusted Jesus as your personal one and only Savior? We need to turn to Him in order to be Forgiven. We need to turn to Jesus in order to be forgiven. That turning is what the Apostle Paul finally did. In order for Paul to be forgiven, he had to face his sin. You realize that? Some of you this morning, listen, it's near unto impossible for you to come to Jesus because you are so frightened of your own sin of what you've done, what you've become. And the only thing I can do is beg you, turn to Jesus. Let it go. Let it go and turn to Jesus. Because in Jesus you will find not only forgiveness, but you will find hope and you will find a new life. And the standard that we then follow, which is Jesus, instead of becoming a condemning standard, it becomes an inspiring standard. It becomes something to aspire to. It becomes something that you desire to become. I want to be like Jesus, not so that I can get to heaven one day, but because I'm going to heaven one day and he is my friend. He walks with me. You follow? 
We need Jesus as our Savior, not just our standard, but when we come to Jesus as our Savior, He should become our standard. And it should be a joy to become more and more like Jesus. When you're on the job site, your mouth isn't constantly deriding, corrupting the creature that God has created. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is the use of edifying, that you may minister grace to those who hear you. You guys that are on job sites, you guys that are in the office, is that your language? If you're a believer, he should be the standard that you're aspiring to, not that condemns you. He may convict you, but he doesn't condemn you. So there's two classes here today. There's those that know Jesus. And maybe you know Jesus, but you've fallen into sin and your conscience is constantly condemning you. You need to turn back to your Savior. Not to be saved, but to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be renewed, to be lifted up so you can walk in newness of life, so you can have the joy of salvation, so people can look at you and see the light. So often... We walk in darkness because we're afraid to face our sin and turn back to Jesus. And then the world around us, they can't see Him in us. We beat ourselves to death and we beat ourselves to death and we beat ourselves to death instead of turning to Jesus and trusting in what He's already done for us. Yes, even as believers. And because we don't do this, because we stay in darkness and we stay in the pit because we are full of self-pity and we are full of self-abuse and we are, we are just beating ourselves down, the world around us continues to walk in the dark because we are absent. So Christian, it's not only to your benefit to turn to Jesus and be forgiven and to forgive yourself and to get up, it is to the benefit of all the world around us. Man, could you imagine walking in the light, walking knowing you're forgiven, and cleansed, and renewed, leaving the filth behind, shining the light of Jesus to a lost and dying world. Folks, they need that. You're watching online. You're here this morning. If you haven't trusted in Jesus as your personal Savior, you need to turn to Him and trust in Him. It doesn't matter what you've been involved in. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. There is hope for you. There is hope for you. It's not too late. I have a saying I coined back when I was a youth pastor, back in 1999, 98. If you're not dead, God's not done. If you're not dead, God's not done. Maybe you've bruised your own conscience and you're afraid that God would never want you. Jesus proves He does. The Apostle Paul proves He wants the broken ones. He wants the wounded ones. He wants the ones that are struggling with addiction. You know why? Well, it's amazing. He calls us his trophies of grace. How cool is that? How cool is that? You get to be a trophy of grace. God pulls you out of the deepest and darkest pit. He cleans you up. He pours the blood of Jesus over you, wraps you in the robe of righteousness, and he says, This is my trophy of grace for eternity. Hey all, thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources and where you can contact us directly. That web address again is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God, get out there, and be the blessing.